0: Do you know where you are? Do you know where you
1: are? This is Appetite for Distortion.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion, episode 85. Yeah, it is. Uh, Brando, welcome to the show. Thanks for, for joining, spending time with, with, uh, with us, with me, I guess, whether you found us through uh, AlternativeNation.net, through SoundCloud, through Spreaker, through Stitcher, through iTunes, and yes, now even YouTube. Uh, we got to just get right to it. So uh, on the line right now, is just one of the most legendary guitarists ever, uh, K.K. Downing from Judas Priest. He joined us uh, briefly this morning because I know he's got a lot to do, a lot of interviews to do, talk about his new book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights and Guns of Roses. K.K. Downing, welcome to the AFD show. Awesome to talk to you.
1: Hi, How are you doing? Good to speak to you, too. Truly
2: an honor and and quite humbled to talk to you. You know, I'll make it quick because I know we don't get a lot of time. You know, Slash has a book. uh, Duff McKagan has a book. If you ask, uh, Sebastian Bach. Axel has a book. Adler has a book. Why was now the right time to write your story?
1: Yeah, I think... um... It sounds a bit morbid, but times are not exactly on 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 our side at the moment. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to be 67 next month, and and I thought that I've been out of the band long enough now, seven or eight years. I thought that. I, thought, I just felt the need to fill in the gaps for people really and answer the questions that they don't have answers to and also hopefully give them, you know, a, a taste and an insight to meet the person as I was as a kid, you know, and as I was as a middle-aged man and now as an older guy, you know. Because um, the thing is, uh, you know, obviously... I feel as though I do know uh, and and love the fans, and uh, we've we've been on a very long journey together. We've shared <clears throat> the decades together, and so uh, I thought now is a good time to have uh, a final, you know, uh, reach out and connect with 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 everyone and have a, a final chat.
2: Hey, they say 67 is the new 57. I don't know who they are, but they say it. You'll be fine.
1: Oh. <laughs> what you mean? I'm here panicking, and I don't need to. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Let's hope. Let's not chinks anything. Um, you know, for our purposes, I tell me if this comparison makes sense. You know, you've, you're on record by saying you were kind of wondering why Priest didn't ask you back when when Glenn Tipton had to leave for health reasons. Kind of. Could you th- compare it to maybe Izzy Stradlin not being included, at least in the way that he wanted, in not in his lifetime? You know, the kind of Richard-Izzy comparison to Richie, to you. How do you feel about old members being brought back for reunions?
1: Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, you know, both obviously Priest and, uh, and Guns, they... Uh, I think there's a duty of care, if that's the right phrase, really, to uh, the fans that know them and love them, that have been with them for so many decades, you know. uh, With Priest, it was a lifetime. Um, You know, it uh, should be considered, really, um, as to what people want, you know. Um, um, But I think, obviously, lots of people that personal things Get in the way and don't do, uh, um, what well, I should do is uh, give some consideration, really, uh, as to what people want. I mean, I had to do that. When Rob left the band for 14 years, you know, I mean, we did a couple of albums with Ripon, and, and, and I love the guy to death, you know. He's, he's a great guy to be around, and a, a great talent, a great singer. But the, the voice of the fans were was, you know, that they that they they really hoped that Rob would be back in the band you know uh, and I had to listen to that you know um, you have to listen to the fans because they're the ones that uh, have been responsible for the band's success and they're the ones uh, that have stayed loyal um, so they are essentially a, a, a band member I think I think everyone would agree with that really Um is, is, is what I think, you know, but that didn't happen with Priest, obviously.
2: You know, I guess mentioned Richie Faulkner, who was a guest of ours not too long ago. Uh, do you have a, a good relationship with him? Because I think fans get a kick out of that. Like recently, uh, Richard Fortas came to a Slash show and performed Rocket Queen. I think that's great. So do you have that kind of relationship with Richie? Yeah, I mean,
1: Richie, as far as I know is a, a nice guy and obviously an excellent player. Um obviously I was a bit disappointed when yeah basically I think the 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 idea was to replace me like for like, you know, so I did feel as though I was kind of being cloned but um I'm not sure if that was exactly fair to Richie. I mean, I could be off the mark here, but you know, um, I think Richie had a right to bring himself to the stage and uh, with his own portrayal of his own image and being, and his and his amazing ability to play the instrument the way that he does. Um, but it is what it is. I mean, especially in the fact that you know, when when Glenn uh, obviously retired from touring, that the, the same didn't happen. You know, obviously um, Andy does look anything like Glenn or he doesn't wear the same clothes the red pants the guitars or anything like that you know so i don't really know what's going on but it is what it is um you know uh i know andy well quite well and uh worked with him before and um consider him a friend you know a great talent um the guys seem to be pretty comfortable and set with what they're doing. I would really encourage everybody to you know, to get a chance to see Priest whenever they can. Um go out there and uh and support the uh Major Priest in whatever format the may be in.
2: Cool. Uh, I think that's awesome that you still support Priest even though you're no longer in the band. Yeah. You made an interesting point though, that Richie kind of looks like you, and a lot have people have said that Richard Fortas looks like Izzy. Kind of weird, I guess. Purpose accent, I don't know, but how do you feel? Do you think maybe you weren't just replaced in the band, but as a friend?
1: Um... I'm not sure I, I just think that I know I know Richie because obviously guitar players know guitar players I know there is kind of predominantly a less Paul guy and um, and he's uh, and he's um, looked up to obviously Zach Rob or Zach Andy Rhodes Michael Shanker players like that you know um, that's what he says don't I don't I don't recall me being cited in there as, as an influence uh, on Richie when he was uh you know, uh, in his younger days, but um, but it is what it is. I say, to my mind, you know. Uh you know, uh, uh, Juice Priest is uh, certainly bigger um, and more legendary than a, any individuals in the band. So uh, for that reason, I think the Priest will always put on a good show and obviously I like to think have great songs. And, and obviously you've got Rob up there who's the voice of uh, Priest and, uh, and he does incredibly well, you know, certainly at this time in, in his life.
2: Right on. Well, I'm getting the signal that you got to go. I know you're super busy this morning promoting your your brand new book, Heavy Duty. And I just hope to, to talk to you again more at length about everything. Priest, about you as a person, GNR. So I appreciate your time this morning.
1: Honestly, if you want to hook up again, let the guys know I'm, I'm around. You know, we're going into winter here so in, in the U.K., so uh, I'll have some time. Please give us a shout, mate, and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you.
2: I will absolutely do that. Thanks so much for being on the AFD show, and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Yeah, bye bye, mate. Bye bye, bye. So that was pretty cool
2: talking to uh, KK Downing, and I'm definitely going to reach out to him again to talk to him more about everything, about comparisons between Priest and, and GNR, him leaving, and Izzy and his story. So I'm um, looking forward to our, our next conversation. But I don't know honestly if this, and that is compared to how long I've been looking forward to this conversation, our next one right now. I've mentioned uh, Roy Orbison Jr. Uh, a few times since I met him when did I? I think I first met you maybe a year ago, and we're in contact through Twitter every now and then. But if you didn't listen to that episode where I, I said how we quote-unquote met, I think it's it's hilarious because I love I love Twitter for what it is. I don't get into the, the negative. I guess, like tweeting at celebrities. I tweeted at um, Roy. I tweeted at uh, Drew Carey the other day because there was a picture I found of him, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Joey Ramone. And Slash. And I forgot, I, I watched the Drew Carey show still. I have, I watch old sitcoms. And I forgot about the episode where I was like, what's the story behind this? And he's like, oh, we had a band called the Horndogs and Slash was in it. And so Drew Carey r- responded. And that kind of stuff, gives, I get a kick out of that. So I got a kick out of when I saw uh, at the AFD show was followed by Roy Orbison Jr. I'm like, oh, that's so cool! You know, I'm a fan, of course, of, of your dad. I mean, who isn't? And what I do here, and I've mentioned it also, I told you off air, and I said it a couple times on the podcast itself. What I do it here at iHeart are, uh, like, I'll get a schedule. Of celebrities come here to be interviewed at one of the stations here, like Q104 or Z100, or if they have, uh, they'll come into one of our studios, and we'll patch them through to different radio stations across the country because they're doing a press tour, just like what I just did with KK Downing. Uh, So, I saw your name on the list for one day. Oh, that's so cool! So, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to message him on Twitter and say, you know what? Can we meet? Uh, It just seemed like fate. Then, as I'm typing, you walk into the studio that I'm actually in right now. And I looked at you, kind of surprised, and I didn't expect for you to know. You know, my face or anything like that, but you had a smile on your face. You walked in with your brother, Alex. I didn't know who he was at the time. I just thought he was someone from the Allman Brothers. Uh, but I know who you are, especially since you had the Roy Orbison Jr. hat. Yeah. <laughs> and I introduced myself, which I never introduced myself as Brando. I just don't have that kind of ego. It's just a radio thing. But yeah. that's how you would know me, I guess. So I said, Oh, I'm Brando from the Appetite for Distortion podcast. You follow me. Like, oh, yeah. I, you know, I love what you do. And I, I'm just kind of just kind of froze Where so I'm like this he knows who I am he likes what I do this is Roy Robertson Jr. this is and you're so friendly shaking my hand and you know shaking Alex's hand and like oh can we get a picture That's my long-winded that this has been a I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I can't wait to talk guns and roses with you, because I said why I never asked you to be interviewed, what connection would Roy Orbison Jr. have with GNR? And since if you're a fan of my podcast, you know I'm always looking for the connection. And you're like, oh well, I used to hang with Axel back in the day, and you started going through the chord progressions of Pretty Woman versus Sweet Child of Mine. I'm like, whoa, I'm an idiot. I am so glad you said something. Like, so you have so many GNR stories, and you're such a huge fan. And uh, I guess I'll shut up now and just say, welcome to the show, Roy Orbison Jr. This is I'm excited.
0: Thank you very much, Brando. Well, it, it's an honor for me because um, you know I'm a big. fan. Of the band, and a big fan of your podcast, and uh, and you have so much love for them that this is a you know a no BS podcast. The people that are listening to this are the real deal too. So it's a little different than just doing uh, doing press. And uh, it took me a while to get back into it because I go through so much music. I'm lucky enough that it's my hobby and my life, and uh, and I've had a permanent backstage pass for for music for the past, you know, my, my whole life. So I'm really, really lucky and fortunate. And one of my ways of giving back is to talk. You know, I'm kind of a historian, and uh, and looking back, I'm just I'm just the luckiest guy in the world because I can talk about nearly everybody. I know everybody. I know Elvis and John Lennon and Bob Marley and Johnny Cash and everybody. So, but uh, but I go through so much music. And 2015 was my big Guns and Roses year, as I go back to them. Um, and then 2016 was nothing but jazz for, for, for eight months. And <laughs> 2017 was Elvis. 2018 it turned out to be Beatles and Traveling Wilburys. Sure. And uh, you know, there's no real plan to that. It's just where my life and, and business takes me. Um, But, uh, you know, I was a Guns N' Roses fan way, way back. And then, like you read a good book, like you read The Hobbit or go watch these James Bond movies, you know, every 10 years or something. Guns N' Roses is one of those that, you know, I go back to every 12 years or so and get really into it. Hmm. And it it means something different as I've gotten older. uh, Sure, yeah. So, you know, uh, now I look at them as the last great rock and roll band. And that gives me a lot of things to talk about. I thought, what am I going to say? You know, what am I going to talk about this? They, and you know, that's that's a heavy mantle to wear. And uh, and I actually shed a tear thinking about this when I said it to myself earlier. I was going, oh, I'm going to have to mention they they're the last great rock and roll band. And uh, for whatever reason, that gets me sentimental, just saying the words out loud, because we kind of didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> I didn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so looking back, uh, you know, so, uh, so I'll just begin with the stories to kind of, that, that's a little bit of qualifying myself. Uh, I play guitar, and uh, and uh, I'm a son of uh, Roy Alderson, and... He and, he and Elvis and Carl Perkins invented rock and roll back in you know, 1950, 55. Hmm. And uh, that, that story is not well enough known, but uh, nothing that you're going to hear today will you have heard anywhere else. You can't find any of it online. You can maybe tangentially, you can, you can qualify it and go find some things, but I'll just start at the beginning. So, it's nice. I grew up in L.A., and so I went to a lot of the same places that uh, the band were. And that surprised me uh, all those years later, looking back. I didn't realize how close we really were, but not just down at Tower Records and at the clubs. And a club used to be called Gazari's. Now it's called the Something Room. I don't know what it's called. I don't pay attention anymore. But, but the places changed names, but, but the old names are the ones that I know. Those are the ones that Slash knows. Mm. So, you know, I grew up at 17 trying to sneak into these same places that they were. And uh, but so 1986, my dad uh, is recording an album, an album called Mystery Girl. And we recorded at different studios. But one of the studios was Rumbo Records. And that's in the Valley in L.A. And we were booked Monday to Friday. And uh, they rolled out the red carpet for us. And Roy was kind of the headline. There was another band coming in on the weekends, Friday and Saturday, uh, Saturday and Sunday. And now this is 1986. So you see where this is going. Hmm. So we would, so I'll, I'll just cut it short, but um, Roy's, that was the album with You Got It, Anything You Want, You Got It. And, okay, sure. Yeah, and in that studio, um, uh, my dad and I, we worked with Bono on a, on a song called She's a Mystery and that song, She's a Mystery to Me, eventually became the U2 song, One. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, and and uh, U2 will come back up uh, in a... Later on in this podcast, as I get to those kind of stories mm-hmm. um, and how they relate to Guns and Roses, but uh, but so we would come in. It was a big session. We had Jim Keltner in there, a great drummer, and we had uh, just so many little stories. I could write a book just about this one thing. You know, we'd be doing something that Eddie Money would walk through the door, and I'd go like, and I can't, you know, the, <laughs> I can't believe the 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 strange like randomness of it. It was just like, <laughs> like Eddie Money's great. I remember two. Tickets to Paradise, but he came in, he was just so excited to see Roy, but but we were actually in there with Jeff Lynn, and the Wilburys, and George Harrison, and Tom Petty. Oh my God. So that's what was going on Monday to Friday. And then, and then we'd come in next Monday, and we'd all go out to eat at this little Indian place across the street. They were open till four in the morning, so we came in on Monday, and I was pretty young, guys. I was maybe you know fifteen. So we would get in, and I would I, we just noticed the, the studio was a mess. There was no toilet paper in the bathrooms. All of the napkins and the paper plates and the silverware was gone. Everything was gone out of the refrigerator, even the mustard and ketchup. <laughs> and, and and very strange things. This is. I went. I went in and turned on the faucet, and the faucet just the water just shot out, you know, all over the place. And uh, and I didn't. We didn't. You know. And the the, the the studio manager would say like, oh, well, you know, we have this crazy. We have this crazy band in here, and every weekend they're just stealing all the stuff. And uh, I, I don't have enough time to explain, but the reason that the faucets were going like that was because they were they were doing a trick that I learned. Now I learned at 15 how to do this. Uh, you, you you steal the, the faucet filter to make a pipe. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that I was learning at fifteen. Wow! Uh, and and so every day, all the bathrooms and all the things, the the, the water would shoot out. You know, and, <laughs> what are they doing? And they were going, oh man, they're 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 pulling out the filter and they're like getting an apple or a carrot or something <laughs> to make a bong I'd or something, carrot, or yeah, to make some kind of smoking pipe. Nice. And they're smoking, and they, they, that's. That I learned from, okay, the band was Guns N' Roses. They're making Appetite for Destruction. I didn't piece that together till years later. You know, that's just a casual thing in my life that I was going in and some, you know... <laughs> Happy band was. <laughs> how low that was. That is low. Now looking back, when you read the stories and stuff, you realize they were starving. They were hungry. They were stealing the ketchup. They were eating, living on ketchup and and you know and the plastic forks. So they really were the real deal. But that was my first thing. They were recording at Rumbo Records in '86. And then it seems like a, you know a long, long time. And I didn't. I don't even know that I heard the name Guns N' Roses. I'm not sure how I ever figured out it was them. Okay. Um, but uh, but I think later on, I must have read this, you know, I pieced it together. I was like, oh, my Lord, that was them. And Because there was no reason to remember that name. You know, you wouldn't even care who it was. And then it was a long time, 87. And it wasn't like until 88 that Guns N' Roses was huge. So that album was being made and was in a can, and it, it simmered. They, they did release it, but it was just on the charts for, like, more than a year. Right. when did heard anything from it. So it was such such a slow burn. That, you know, the next. Uh, so that's my story. When I thought, oh, where do I begin? And what was my first encounter with Sons and Roses? But well, I didn't meet them, but I got to know them through their trash they left behind. In the
2: <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to start. And that just, I think that perfectly, at least for my understanding about your upbringing, kind of explains it that you're just Roy. There's no Orbison attached to it at this moment. You're just a kid growing up. But just because yeah. you do have the Orbison attached to you, that all these yeah. random characters happen to be these A-list top, you know, whether it's infamous, famous, and you're just a kid. I, I, I can't grasp what that's like. You know, my dad was a dentist, so I would meet this fer- famous periodontist. I mean, that doesn't – it's not the same thing as being around George Harrison and and, and Tom Petty and, and just uh, – a. A happenstance meeting with with GNR with them. You know, making bongs out of sinks.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's the kind of thing I was learning. Well, you know, to to, to delve into that on a little side note, uh, because not uh, I was there for a lot of critically important stuff, but it, it's the stuff that becomes interesting later that is kind of important now to me. You know, that I go oh, because I it, I got to know people when there was just nothing going on. So John Belushi. So this is my little side note for you. This you won't hear many places, but uh, John Belushi did a, a Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, Roy Orbison with Yeah And he sings And he falls down And they lift him up And he's still singing the note Oh He's still singing And <laughs> um, and another good friend of mine Even to this day Dan Aykroyd He He didn't know Some people don't know anything About Roy Orbison They just missed it So um, he saw these glasses And he put on the hat He put on a hat and He played a monarchy, He put on his glasses And, and that became The Blues Brothers
2: that it was inspired by Roy, or it started with being inspired with, by.
0: Yeah, and and uh, you know, I've got i learned to tell these stories in kind of a humble way. So you know, it's, it's John Belushi's thing; he was doing it. It's Dan Aykroyd thing, but th- there is some back story there. But what it meant was uh, John Belushi was a huge Roy Orbison fan. So sometime I'm around eight years old, we're doing a show in New York. He comes back. He comes back to meet Roy. And he brought four mop-top kind of weird guys that were the Ramones. Oh, wow. We met them way, way, way early. I know you knew them both. And these were guys, and they loved Roy. They freaked out over Roy. And John Belushi was trying to get money from Roy to invest in this band, the Ramones. You know, and John Belushi, people be, don't well, know, he wasted a lot of his money trying to... He, he was like, I don't know what he was doing, managing them or what he was doing, but he really believed in the moralist punk rock thing, and he was actually trying to weasel roll out of some money to invest in the Ramones. (laughs) So so I I, I was sitting on the couch playing with my little, you know, Hot Wheels cars and stuff. That's that's the kind of stuff that I, I have a lot of those kind of stories, you know, things that I just remember, remember going to Alabama or somewhere wherever we went and, Muscle shows in 1978, 79, and we opened the door, and there's cobwebs everywhere and just beer things. And and we're in Leonard Skinner's studio, and they had the plane had crashed, and the place had been boarded up till we got there. Mm. And I I didn't know anything about it at the time. Now I look back and I go, Oh, I remember that studio. So those things are imprinted in my soul, you know, and it doesn't matter almost. What we talked about, I, I've got stories everywhere. But um, yeah, so that was the Guns N' Roses one. That just it, it becomes later; it becomes important.
2: Do you like that? Do you wish, kind of like maybe you, you appreciated it more in the moment, or do you like oh, looking no. back and like, wow, this happened?
0: Much, much more fun to be innocent. So you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was I was flying to Europe somewhere, and I'm looking at a magazine, and I say, "Hey, mommy, mommy, there's a guy from the picnic." You know, and I was about nine. I don't know if I said, hey, mommy, mommy, but it's <laughs> not like what I would have said. I was nine. Maybe I was even 10, 11, but I think it was nine. And uh, I was pointing at the guy from the picnic, Paul McCartney. <laughs> 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 so I didn't know who he was. I met you know met him already when I was little. And uh, then, you know, seven years later, I discovered the Beatles a little bit. And, oh, I, yeah, there's the guy from the picnic. So uh, th- that's, that's fun. And it's it gives me a more kind of, in my way, it gives me a little bit more of a clear focus on what was happening.
2: And that, did you look at your dad the same way that he's just dad, or did you know that he was, you know, somebody special to other people?
0: Well, what I didn't know was the mathematics behind uh, that there could only be. Certain people at the top. I thought everyone in the world was the top of whatever they did. <laughs> but, but the only people that we knew was the you know next door Johnny Cash. That literally <laughs> was my world. I didn't know that many people you know to I was about three. So so I I saw the way they treated Johnny. I saw the way they treated Roy. I saw the way June Carter acted and my mom acted. And they would wear the same dresses and they bought the same clothes. And I don't know. I, I realized everyone wasn't musicians, but I thought if your dad was a plumber, he was the king of the plumbers and. and And all the other plumbers would come to see him and take Wow. I remember feeling like that. So I didn't think there was that much different about it, the way we were attacked in limousines and, uh, you know, grown women throwing themselves at, you know. That's normal uh, to you. Oh, boy. That's fascinating. What a perspective. Very normal. Yeah. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, it's, it's, I can't get I, I, I love it and the fact that you're just so humble about all of this and you seem to have still carried that, that you're just used to it. This is just life, but at least now you can, you can look back and say, "You know what that wasn't normal. And I guess that makes sense why you kind of appreciate it now because it's you know you might have acted differently at the time. you know why, why, why change it?
0: The real greats that I met in life—they were—they were special to begin with, and then they became greater through their experiences. So someone like George Harrison was always already special, but by the time he processed all that information, it meant he had the money to fly to India to meet and the, the connections to meet with a Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he—he—he—and he he and he 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 became greater through his experiences. He knew what it was like to be a shoe salesman in a in a store in Leeds, or to be a scientist, or in the mafia. He he he, he absorbed all those experiences, and uh, I won't tell you the kind of people who didn't grow. <laughs> but I've met lots of people that are you know plastics that did not grow through their experiences, and for whatever reason, you know, and sure. I'm worried. But uh, but the real greats, and my dad was definitely one of those. He was special to begin with, and it it drew him to music. But uh, through his experiences, he kept on going on and on. He passed that to me a bit. And uh, I actually feel a bit lonely sometimes. I'm like, how come everybody else didn't get this? Why am I the only person who remembers all this stuff? And and, 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 uh, because uh, there's a lot of others, you know, uh, my peers that, Of course, Danny Harrison is also fantastic, and he he's very very intelligent and everything. But but somehow I've continued what my dad was teaching me, and and we've grown through these experiences. Um, That's maybe the only way I can say it. Uh, He was a special guy. He was very humble, um, but competitive as well. And so it's it's hard to say was he just nice or was. I don't know, but uh, but I but I do like to talk about this kind of stuff. So let's get back to guns and those. <laughs> yeah, well, that was
2: going to be my, my pivot. So out of all the, where yeah. should we start? What should be the next phase of your GNR tale?
0: Okay, the next phase, uh, there's actually a little bit of a transitional in there. There's a little transitional material. Uh, the next phase, okay, is that I am a, a fan. It's my birthday. It's like my 18th, 19th birthday. It's October 15, my birthday is uh, October 18, so for my birthday, October 15, 1989, we went to, to the showdown at the Coliseum, Guns and Roses, um, there was a Living Color opening and a Rolling Stones close, hmm. and uh, this was a pivotal show, um, uh, but because Guns N' Roses, all bands go through a, a metamorphosis when they first get big, you know, something happens that's beyond the band. And like with, with Nirvana, uh, Kurt Cobain was actually off in France on tour when that album hit. And when he got back, the world was different. He was the same, things had changed, and, uh, and it freaked him out. And he instantly, before the first show back in L.A., he dyed his hair purple. And he came out and no one even knew who he was, because <laughs> they wanted him to look like the album. And this was the same thing with Guns N' Roses. They, whatever they did, they got they got big, and they were playing their little shows, and then they, they took a little break, and then bam, they came back in this big way. And this was this was a huge chip on their shoulder to prove themselves. in This huge coliseum, I think it was 120,000 people, if I remember it correctly. But it was a big show. It was with the Rolling Stones. The Living Color was really good at the time too. They had that cult of personality. Um, and, uh, but Guns N' Roses, uh, and they came out and nobody really knew them. And I, I was with a lot of music business people and managers and things. I, I was actually with, uh, my, my brother Alex and, uh, Elijah Allman, whose mom is Cher. And shares manager and all these kind of people, and some, and even the audience was was kind of almost taking bets mentally on uh, who's going to be better. The Stones can't beat the Stones, and the new crowd was saying Guns and Roses are going to blow them away. So there was a competitive atmosphere, but no one knew what they were like. Uh, they came out really. What I'm trying to say is they became the biggest band in the world, the number one band, number one album, a couple of songs, but nobody in that audience had seen them before. It's hmm. strange, but you know. So so you sent that and nobody knew what it was gonna be and they came out and Axel starts going into it was Kind of instant negativity. It was pretty, pretty tough. Like it wasn't really. It was a, a real guy. He comes out and he goes like, "This may be, you know, I guess it's on tape. Your fans will look on it." But sure. In, it's like, you no. this, this. You're looking at the last Guns N' Roses concert, if some members of this band don't shape up their acts. We you
2: know. saw playing with Mr. Like, Brownstone, right? Isn't that the quote? Yeah, yeah. I hate
3: to do this on stage, but I've tried every other fucking way, and
1: unless certain people together, these will be the last Guns N' Roses shows you'll
0: fucking ever see. Because I'm tired of too many people in this organization dancing with Mr. Goddamn Brown Scarlet. And that was the line. And, you know, and... Uh, you were at that show. Oh, it was very depressing to hear, you know. I was like, what? What's going on? And we were watching kind of a band break up. Now, those theatrics continued on throughout the band, but that's what I'm saying. No one was ready for that. It was dramatic. And they were damn good, but they would do it, and then they would just come to a dead stop. (laughs) The audience would clap and stop, and there'd be nothing going on for 60 seconds. And slash and go into a song and then start again and again. And they they were really, really good, but it was uh, an awkward show, I'm telling you. Um, Hmm. And uh, Axel fell off the stage. The stage was about 13 feet high. He fell off the stage and just jumped back up and kept on going. It was incredible. (laughs) One of the most memorable shows I can see. Not because it was perfect or because it was great, but because um, that was way too raw for the days. I mean,. It was, it was raw, and it was cool, and it was really good, but I, I don't didn't know what I thought of it at the time. I went back the next night. I, I got tickets all the night, So um, and they they were they did a normal set. But that was my next, So and, and I, I went and looked that up because I wanted to talk about it. I thought, okay, I was at that show, looked it up, typed in Guns N' Roses, and said October 15, 1989, and that brought it all back. So there's another little fan story for me, and... Uh, and, uh, by the way, uh, Guns N' Roses did better than The Stones, but The Stones were having a high point, too. Bands like The Stones and ACDC, they they do great, and then there's a couple of down, and then they do great. They keep on, just when you count them out, they come back with something really excellent. And that particular album, I think, was called and Hard Place, and they were doing this Moroccan style music, and Keith had a great song, and... It was a great album, pretty good comeback, and uh, so I, I don't know if it was a winner on that one. Um, there you go.
2: And obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming since you were at a, a few nights that you, I mean, there's one, you said it was more memorable, but do you prefer the hectic okay. versus they came on, they played great, you know, they all took a bow. Do you prefer something to go awry?
0: no but the second show went smoothly and I only remember the first show
2: well that's my point I mean you were, I don't know. yeah I,
0: no I, no you know i I have to say I like it when it's no I don't like the problem <laughs>
2: okay <laughs> fair you remember it but I, it still causes you stress i guess
0: <laughs> no I, I you know uh, no I like it to be perfect you know uh, it's one of the things that I like about slash and his modern live shows is he's just done it so long the mistakes aren't even noticeable. You know, if there's any mistake or even pretty major things like the lights not working or the guitar not going on, you don't even notice it anymore. It is so tight, you know? So, uh, so I have to say I'm more impressed with, uh, I mean, just more music faster, not the drama, not so much talking. Uh, the music was actually better than the theatrics. Yeah. And they are noted for their theatrics. So, um, Yeah, for me the music, uh, music was great. Mm. What? uh, Mr. Brownstone. Mr. Brownstone uh, goes from a long line of, you know, um, the Bo Diddley beat. So I'm a bit of a. You know, amateur musicologist, and I and I and I have a little bit of talent for hearing where music, you know, the line of music, where things come from. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I always like to do that for people, and they go, "Oh, you're really overthinking this." And I'm saying, "No, it's really obvious, isn't it? You got Bo Diddley, you got Buddy Holly, not fade away. You got certain songs along those lines using that beat. But Guns N' Roses on that first album put themselves in a in a strong rock and roll tradition with that that." But, you know, they did that. And, uh, and uh, it, it's just one more brick in the wall that they built, that rock-solid brick of rock and roll. Uh, pretty cool stuff, all those little details.
2: What about the comparison between Sweet Shaw the Mine and Pretty Woman? You were telling me about that off the air.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that a little later. Okay. But, uh, let me just see. This is what well, I'm talking about: appetite for destruction. Now,
2: I love it because uh, just for the that's why we're we're figuring out when to talk about stuff so people yeah. understand. Roy did his homework and has like, all right, we we're going to talk about this, this, and this, and go through. He's so excited to talk about GNR. He wants to make sure. Like, I don't know if you have, you know, an outline in front of you, notepads, but you did your homework, so it's so cool to, you know, that you did that.
0: Logically, you know, when we do these interviews with Roy Orbison, I've done enough interviews. We say, you know, when was the first time you met Roy? When was the last time you met Roy? What's your favorite song you played on? What was the song, favorite song you didn't play on? You know, and so, um, so I just put it in chronological order. That's why I started with a uh, Records eighty six, and then this would be, you know, October eighty nine, and um, and then. Um, and then I was a big Guns N' Roses fan, and okay, so the music, Let's, this is an appropriate time to talk about the Appetite for Destruction. Right. Appetite for Destruction uh, ends up being, you know, one of the greatest albums ever. Excuse me, I'll repeat that. The child story just fell over. <laughs> Uh, Appetite for Destruction ends up being one of the greatest albums ever. Really, really, really high in the top list. I'm sure for most of your listeners it's number one, but but just even historically, it's it's in the top 20, which is very, very high. That, that's up there with um, you've got to start kind of at the beginning with uh, Elvis Presley's greatest hits and Chuck Berry's greatest hits, mm. Roy Orbison's greatest hits, Johnny Cash's greatest hits. And uh, back to Mozart and Beethoven.
2: I was just wearing, no joke, a uh, mostly Mozart shirt yesterday. It was my dad's, but I, I'm a huge fan of Mozart. So yeah, I always think of. That's why I like GNR so much. The orchestral. I like that. You know.
0: Yeah. Roy, Roy invented that. <laughs> that's uh, <one> a <laughs> that uh, Queen and uh, band took off with a little bit. And, sure. Uh, and the Electric Light Orchestra, but continuing on then forward from the, the great rock and roll era, which kind of preceded Guns N' Roses, then into, you know, um, let's see, the, the Pink Floyd album, the great Pink Floyd album, Bob Marty's Legend, the Eagles' greatest hits, which just became the greatest album of all time again. Um, up into the 70s, uh, you know, where uh, Sex Pistols, never mind the bullets. Right. N- NWA, straight out of Thompson. Awesome. Michael Jackson, thriller. And Guns N' Roses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and what's really impressive about that list to me is just how late it was, how late it came in the game. I mean, and now, it's, in a way, it's before a lot of the listeners were born, but. But that's really late, you know, when you're talking about Elvis Presley style. It's, you know, 80 in 89, to do something important, to do something new, significant, that builds on the foundations, uh, it is nearly impossible. Mm. And it's to- completely unprecedented. And it hasn't been duplicated since. So even though, in a way, I'm saying it's the 18th greatest album of all time, uh, that is under very, very harsh <laughs> terms, <laughs> very stringent criteria based on a lot of things, you know, historical significance and uh, you know, so the Beatles' White Album. You know, there's just a couple, and and I think for the most part the band members would agree with me. But uh,
2: still. I, I was just about to say, I, I would be shocked if any of them would be uh, disappointed or hurt being behind the likes of Mozart or Elvis. You know, that's they're yeah, they're inspired by them.
0: Yeah, and then for me personally, the album is quite a bit higher. Like most of your fans, you know, for me personally. You know, it's up there. It's way up there. I, I don't really know what's number one. Probably my dad's album, so number one. <laughs> that's for me personally. And that's still saying a lot, you know, so it's way, way up there. Uh, the, uh, the, the first song, you know, that you hear, Welcome to the Jungle, it's got this delay. I'm, I'm a guitarist, so I looked at everything through a lot of those points of view, too. So I've tried to duplicate the song a little. That delay is so strange. It's a little... Off-kilter, it's hard to do. Um, The rest of the song is just great, and the energy is so high. Slash's guitar playing on the whole album is so good. The ones that jumped out to me all these years later are Welcome to the Jungle, Paradise City which I've been learning for my whole life. I still can't really play it
3: all.
0: <laughs> I can strum it, I can sing it, I can play the solo. But to really get it right, it has a lot of intricate parts and a couple of different layers. So you have to choose what you want to play. And the opening, even the opening kind of single note arpeggio thing, the finger piggy type thing, is very idiosyncratic. And uh, nobody can really do it. But Slash,
3: hmm. um,
0: the later bands, uh, Buckethead and Richard Fortas and stuff—they—they they actually aren't doing that. Hmm. Um, and they play it like I do, you know, just kind of—I know the chord and I'm going to plink through it in, in rhythm. But but Slash has some little tricks that are, you know, in his uh, in his nervous system. Hmm. But um, but you know, when you think about what makes the album so good, uh, Rocket Queen stands out. I don't know that big ending that. Crazy ending that sounds like you've heard it before somewhere else, but really you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've uh, never
2: heard it put, uh, put quite like that. I like, I liked how you you phrased that.
0: No, I, I like I said I'm a musicologist. I tried to find where that was coming from. <sighs> you won't find it. Um, but "Sweet Child of Mine," uh, that is a song that was always really important to me because it's. Uh, the good bands, like Rolling Stones, they can do ballads or rockers. Roy Orbison, you know, maybe the greatest rock song of all time, Pretty Woman, maybe the greatest ballad of all time, Crying. And that, that's always been cool to me. So I always judge bands on those kind of dynamics. Um and Guns N' Roses scores very heavily on that. You know, they, they, they're emotional and technical and hard and soft, and that Zeppelin was great at that. But um, Sweet Child of Mine, it just has, you know, has great lyrics, great hooks and things. And I did not figure this out myself until about three years ago. The reason I was going to get to this later is because it is so long-winded and so arguable and it's kind of uh, going to be revolutionary for your fans. So I have to start a little back. Uh, that um, The song Pretty Woman is written in 1964 by my dad on a 12-string acoustic guitar. And that is the first rock and roll or rock song with a guitar riff. Now, that's already where it starts. People are going to go, no, no, Chuck Berry. I go, no, that's an intro. And they go, oh, what I'd say were Ray Charles. I go, nope, that's a piano. That's a piano figure. Oh, uh, Lucille by by Little Richard. Sorry, that's a bass run. Um, um, They go through, and I have to shoot these down, these criteria. So it's a very strict criteria. I'm talking about a a riff within a song that is integral to the chord structure and lyrics. Meaning, if you take the riff away, like a deck of cards, a a, a house of, of cards, you pull away the one card, and they fall. Okay, And so that includes all the songs that came after it, songs like... Uh, like Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne hmm. but While the Rift is The Rift is dissimilar The function is not and so in that manner, you know, from from Metallica-type songs to, you know, Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, when you've got that kind of a figure opening up a song, it is in the line of Pretty Woman. And I've done a lot of work. I can't find anything for that. And that was actually fairly late when you consider 64. You know, the great rock and roll songs are mostly in, like, 54 to 58. But uh, continuing on that line, it means a lot of the songs that you think of as the greatest riff. When I, when I read in guitar magazine, I basically had to stop reading those guitar magazines. They made me so mad. Guitar Player and Guitar for the Practicing Musician, my two favorite magazines ever, a couple of years ago, just opened it up. And I even got in an argument with the editors of those magazines in interviews that I did months before they printed this. I couldn't later... It's the same thing. I get in an argument with them, and then I see the list, and I realize why they were so argumentative. And of course, Roy's isn't even on there. But but when I looked through the list, uh, the, the number one was Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. I was like, oh, sorry, that that's that's Roy. Oh, number two, Day Tripper. Nope, sorry, guess again, that's Pretty Woman, um, Sweet Child of Mine. And I thought, well, that's that's coming from there. And I and I actually have to go back and prove it. Then all of a sudden, so Rolling Stones, they Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. Uh, they wrote no songs. This is this is funny for people. They go, what? No, they're the greatest songwriter. Yeah, but for what I'm talking about, up and they wrote no songs. They had a couple of Chuck Berry covers. They had some Buddy Holly covers. They had Under My Thumb. They had um, One Good Song, Time Is On My Side, and they didn't write that. So they wrote zero songs. They go on tour with Roy Orbison. Um, This would be 64, and on the way back from flying, they were in Australia on a tour. They stopped in L.A. for a couple of days. They record one song. This song, Keith Richards, and I believe him. Uh, everyone has their own way of looking at it. He says he dreamt it.
2: Right. That's course, just, that's the story.
0: That is the story, you know. That's the story, and I don't argue. You know, if Johnny Cash says something, and then someone else says, "No, no." That I believe Johnny Cash. I believe Keith Richards. I I, I believe the first hand account. So, and I know he's telling the truth on that. But he had just come from a three week tour where he heard a song with a two with an eight note figure in E. Da 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 da. It begins with two notes. Duh, duh. And then he just went half the riff and back down. Dun, 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 dun. And even the, core, the, the, the bridge is very similar, and it's pretty much Pretty Woman walking down the street, Pretty Woman kind of like to meet. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't go no girl reaction. You've got to do a little homework, but it's there. The next one's even easier, Day Tripper, 65. And the truth is you can go back to any band from back then and go and find their Pretty Woman. Go look at their songs in 65, find their Pretty Woman. They all have it, and for the Beatles, Day Tripper. Little keys in there. You know, if you play guitar, just do it. Your fingers will actually accidentally play it. Now, of course, that's that's Pretty Woman going through the prism of John Lennon's genius. You know, he he quantized the riff, he juggled the notes in the riff, and and they put it into a great song of their own. But uh, Day Tripper is another Pretty Woman uh, derivative. Uh, though, the, when I So this, this, this article that I was reading, I got to number three, Sweet Child of Mine, and I felt like, well, and, and, and I don't know. I didn't see it instantly myself. That's why it's very hard to hear. But I played it on guitar, and I, what I did was I played – I played Sweet Child of Mine and I played the Pretty Woman riff over it and it fit like a flipping glove. And then I played Pretty Woman and I and I went, oh, here's the trick. Uh, Sweet Child of Mine is an octave jump. It's not an E either, but, um, but it's an octave jump, which is effectively like playing this the first note twice. Um, and, uh, and then the way the last note slowed down, one step at a time. There's something in there, and you just have to kind of hum it. It's hard to hear, but it's there. Dun 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 dun. That's kind of the pretty woman, and the sweet child of mine is. Dun 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 dun. If you play guitar, do it a little bit. You're going to get a big smile. And now Slash is such a complicated person. You know, when he did the song Anastasia. People online started saying, Oh, he got that from such and such composer, you know. And there's, and he he claims, and I believe him, he claims that he had, it did not, that he didn't know, he hadn't heard that. But so much went into his subconscious, so much went into his psyche. There's only 12 notes, and he played them all in every order as a kid. And he's very learned, and he's very experienced, and so who knows what comes out? I, I, in his case, I think he just tapped into the same thing that Roy tapped into. You know, I don't think there was any like plagiarism there or anything. He just he tapped into that spirit, and and uh, the audience responded to it because of that pretty woman factor the same thing that gives people hairs on their arm when they're walking down the street and they hear that bum boom, bum boom, boom, and that, that, that riff actually hits you right in the abdomen right in the root chakra pretty woman actually is a kind of a swing riff but sweet child of mine is also it is just the most beautiful thing ever <laughs> So, uh so it's there if you want to if you want to dig for it and uh, and if you don't they're both still really good songs
2: we have um, a lot of musicians uh listeners who are musicians whether it be in band I know a a fan who has co-hosted the show with me sir Kevin who has a guitar shop in Ireland so there's a lot of learned uh guitarists out there that I I, I can't wait to hear the feedback what their thoughts are about this conversation and one that's gonna Continue because I'm, I'm just sitting here, and a lot of people are going to make fun of me because I'm usually, I have an interrupting problem, and I talk. Obviously, it's a podcast; I'm supposed to talk, but uh, I'm just in sitting here in just awe of just what you're saying, and I, 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 feel like I'm in class. I'm learning. These are things I, I wouldn't have uh, put two and two together, and I, I, I think everyone's going to appreciate this. as... As much as I am. What would be the next phase? Like, any interaction with any of these guys? Because I'm astounded...
0: There is a lot of interaction, but even on the topic that you're just on, I, you know, I'm excited to get the information out there, and, and uh, I'll just power pack it a little bit. Um, Anastasia, and it's because I learned the same things. I'm a little bit younger than Slash, but we're going down the same paths. I was going to the Guitar Center and seeing the same stuff you were. I was listening to the same music. We were, you know, uh, I grew up in L.A., and so there's a little more there. So when I hear a song like Anastasia, and it's in D minor, and it goes to like a B flat minor and it goes back to the D minor and then to the G I'm going oh this is BB King's Hummingbird mm. You know, so and that's going to be very hard to hear. But then I went, oh, of course he knows Hummingbird. Hummingbird, uh, Jimmy Page did it on an album called Outrider that I know that we were all into in '88. And uh, and so he went and learned. Uh, so Slash knows the song Hummingbird and that chord progression, and he fingerpicked it, and it's the intro to Anastasia. Now, you know that those are the art. People are saying like, well, do, how, where do you know that? How do you? I don't. I don't know it. I didn't read it. I feel it. I know those two songs, and and I. Feel See those things very clearly. So I was like, "Oh, Anastasia, hummingbird." But see, the great thing about Slash, one of the great things about Slash, is you know that he has lots of different techniques, and he finds the perfect part, and that he got a bit from Aerosmith. But he finds within one song, he finds perfect little parts and little, and he builds on them and plays variations, and he has uh, just some great, great um, skills in this area. You know he, he's really the, the best in that. It's coming. Jimmy Page would be the other great person who knows how to piece together the parts of a song, as far as the guitar perspective. I mean, it is incredible. I mean, I am not that good. I can, I can, I can, I, I can juggle techniques, and I can kind of put pre-choruses in there and things. But but I did learn a lot uh, technically. Um, You know, a slash. He likes to play a solo where they will do, he'll play over the full verse and then the chorus. And so a lot of Slash's solos, one of the reasons they sound so good, you don't recognize it, but, but the, the, the background is shifting. Most other bands, the, the, the solo is the solo, and it'll be a, a four or 16-bar thing, and it plays, and he they play over it. But Slash is actually playing over like the verse and then the chorus, or the pre-chorus, and then the, or, or has written a small part that is a song within a song, a nice little ascending or descending chord structure that he can wail over and so his his solos are song constructions in themselves and deserve to be studied. Uh, my favorite is "You're Alive" hmm. on the album "You're Alive."
2: That's a great song. Yeah, yeah.
0: And my other favorite is very aggressive. is on "Don't Damn Me." On "Don't Damn Me," he just you know, gives you goosebumps every time, and and I can hear in a guitarist like Buckethead. That Buckethead took that "Don't Damn Me" sound. For his part. And he took that actually even further in his own solo music. I'm like, oh, that's coming from a slashy, you know, repeat the riff twice and then do the variation and then shape it back out on the fourth time. Bam! And just give him goosebumps. Oh, it's so amazing. So, so I've got favorite solos and, uh, you know, I, I got into it so hard. I, I went and bought the slash wham, whammy pedal and then I found out he's not using that whammy pedal, that red one. He uses a shell <laughs> that... Goes to a rack-mounted wah wah pedal that he can turn up more aggressive. Um, I've gone online and looked at his amp settings. Some fan got up before the show or somebody and they they posted that online. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and I, I turned my amp the same way. I I love that solo on Your Alive so much that I I found out it was a Silver Jubilee, which came out in uh, Marshall put out this Silver amp in 1987. And I'm not sure why I didn't pick up on it because I was around in those days. I knew Smoking Joe Bonamassa when he was back in a, album, uh, in a band called Bloodlines with my, my friend Dickie Betts' uh, son, Dwayne Betts. And uh, Joe Bonamassa has gone on to be something. But if you listen to his tone, and he's a bit, we're all about the same age, he plays a Gibson through the Silver Jubilee, uh, Silver Marshall. And uh, they've reissued those recently. So go out and get yourself one there. It's flipping expensive. But, but I went and got one just because I wanted that sound. And it's kind of a nasally honking sound. Of, eh. But when I hear that sound, and it's on, you're alive. And I've learned to hear which amp he's using, whether it's the, the JTM 800 or the Silver Jubilee, and I love the Silver Jubilee. It's all over Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, and uh, and, and I, I'm driving along with my girlfriend, uh, my wife now, and, uh, and I start tapping, I'm going, Fantastic Silver Jubilee. Can you hear that sound, that kind of horn kind of sound that someone hears it? Um, and I even, I play tenders, uh, so I went and got the slash pickups and put those little half-double humbuckers, whatever they are. They're like little Single coil humbuckers in my Strat. They didn't give me uh, that sound. Uh, it is true most of his sound comes from his fingers, but you know you got to use heavy strings. He he tunes he he tunes a little funny, and he uh, he plays those heavy strings. I got into it pretty technically. I, I really like Slash, and uh, he's my favorite modern uh, living guitarist. But it, then uh, when I was doing my homework again, the last 24 hours listening to uh, the, the band, I realized that Axel mimics that same raw talent and virtuosity. You know, these guys they practice, but they're also the real deal and they got what they got through a lot of hard blood sweat and tears. You know, I read all the books, I read slashes, obviously. and that's the one where it was just so close. I mean, he would mention streets or places, or going down to, you know, the the deli. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm going, like, oh, that was our Chanters, or whatever it said. That's our after place. Oh, that's that's where he met Duff. Oh, that's so cool. I I, I swear I could have been in there that day. <laughs> but I, and I I went and read Duff's book, and I uh, read all the Guns N' Roses books, and uh, the the slash book slash, and 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 Duff's book. It's so easy and Otherwise and the corresponding documentary to that. That's the best place to get Guns N' Roses information. They did really good. I'm going to go read the Slash one again. I like it so well. But I read other books, and, you know, they would – these critics, they would – they talk about uh, Axel Rose using too many vocal effects on *User Illusion 1 and 2 and the Gremlin Boy, he does, and all this other stuff. But all of that is there on the Appetite for Destruction. I don't know what they're talking about. If you listen to Rocket Queen, you know, it's got heavy vocal processing. And he whispers and he screams and he, I don't know if he burps in the mic, but he, he's, he does whatever he wants to do. And he sings from low to high and high to low with... Almost no training, but, but just great, great. And I realized, oh, he's got different techniques the same way. So so Guns N' Roses ends up being really special. The band members are all great. Izzy adds a great, you know, he married a Swedish girl, and she's, his wife was friends with uh, my, my wife, and uh, so I, I share that with him. I share a sort of understanding of relationships from the Swedish Wives Club. and and I'm proud of him for what he did I'm proud of him for standing away from the band respecting his sobriety in his own life and going and doing whatever the hell he's doing Hmm. you know I respect that just as much although I would like to see him in the band and I don't know if, I, I haven't paid enough attention to know if there's been a full reunion with him in it but that's the one that I will weep to see but but as far as like
2: no it's just been um, I mean Adler made a couple of appearances and I mean it, with this new with Axel Slash and Duff but Izzy uh, he was with when DJ Ashbro was still in the band I believe yeah yeah Velvet Revolver so all five of them oh, have not been on the stage yet no
0: gonna happen and I'm gonna be there and I will see you that day Brando. Uh, I hope so <laughs> going to happen it is gonna happen um, So uh, just you know there's not enough to be said about Axel uh, mimicking that how did those two guys get in that band? You know, how did they they work so well together that if Axel goes does anything he's got to have a, a slash clone and if Slash goes and done does anything good, he's gotta have an Axel clone. Their styles I don't know, you know, that's what I'm saying. They they develop separately and then intertwined in a You know, unbreakable form. I don't know what to say, but we really did luck out. The world got lucky when those two guys got together. Hmm. And uh, so that led me into. Okay, so now I can jump back, uh, and, and I'll get back to Slash
2: later. <laughs> so, uh, well, support- I, I love how, and again, this is just, I'm aw, that I had no idea that I wasn't gonna ask you. I was like, yeah, cool, we're following each other on Twitter, but what connection and what kind of fandom would you have? But you're just rattling off, you know, the deep cuts of the Illusions, you know, tracks from, from Slash's solo records. So you're obviously a fan. So as a fan, but somebody with connections, have you gotten to profess your love to Slash in person? Is that something would you come off to him by saying, oh, I love this, or would you, I don't know, not be so much of a fanboy as I would be?
0: No, it's going to be, it seems fact when I get to that part. Okay. But, um, you know, I, I'm good friends with certain people that's going to sound funny. You know, I meet everybody. I've got a couple of enemies. You know, somehow me and Red Hot Chili Peppers do not get along. Just, I, I seriously nearly have been in a fight with Flea three times. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and then another thing, you know, So, and I shouldn't mention names, but, you know, people, you know, you'd be in the viper room and someone pulled, throws a beer over Mike McGrath's head to me uh, because I'm a little bit more local than most of the stars. And he's an actual star, and so, of course, there you go, nearly fist fight. And there's lots of it. But that's just, that's just some kind of name-dropping stuff. But there's I meet mean, a lot of people. Some are in my life. Some aren't. Uh, but two of them that are just amazing uh, is Bono. Bono of U2. I'm not sure how we became such good friends, but he loved me. I, met, I think the, there, the trick is, I met them in that period that I was talking. They had the biggest album in the world, and I met them right before they had to you know I they still had their innocence I met him when he still could trust people and um, and I was a kid so he trusted me and then so he would take me along and we would go you know we went out to Hollywood there, running around, around the guitar center and crap like that. And we parked the car, and I'm not good at this skill, and he wasn't either, so we got lost. We lost the car, had to take a, a taxi home, and he actually sent an assistant to go find the car. It took them hours. Um, we didn't even know where we parked. So this kind of stuff is going on. But then I didn't see, but I'm He's a big, and another one is Brian Johnson. For whatever reason, a guy from AC/DC, he grabs me and yanks me around with him at parties all night long. <laughs> he, loves, he loves to go. This is Roy Orbison Jr. Jr. I love. He loves saying that, and he uses me, he uses me to get out of conversations. <laughs> I, I'm within a couple of yards, I'm doing my own thing. He's talking to someone. Someone's kind of kind of pinned in the corner. And he goes, like, Have you met Roy Orbison Jr.? And he pulls me. Over <laughs> he uses me to kind of like get out of. Con-
3: conversation.
2: <laughs> and,
0: okay, man, you can do that all the time. I'm your, i your parachute. Yeah, just, you, you just flag. I'll come like interrupting Vic to the bar.
2: <laughs> That's hilarious.
0: Car driver. He he wants me to get my license to go down to Florida because he's got a he's got a NASCAR track in his backyard and he races cars. So right. I, I, you know, I may do that someday. So, so
2: what I'm do you not- think about the Brian? Oh, before I guess if it goes <laughs> along your thought pa- process, what do you think about Axel and ACDC?
0: Uh, when I first heard it, it's two of my favorite bands, and all of them irreplaceable. And I thought, how is this going to work? And uh, like everybody, I think that low expectation surprised me. I saw it, and I thought, oh, my Lord. Axel's in a wheelchair and still killing it. You got, girls <laughs> dancing on the, you got girls dancing on the wheelchair. And see, that's something that those guys have. It goes, now we're going backwards. Axel and Flash, they have conviction. You can tell in the first notes that someone, you know, it's not a matter of even being good. They also have that conviction. My dad had conviction. You know, he, he, you believe what he's telling you. And, uh, and the tone matches the subject matter and matches the lyrics. And so that is all in Guns N' Roses, you know, the tone of the guitar, the tempo, the key the lyrics, the song title, the subject matter, but uh, but Axel had such conviction, I just became a believer, I was thought, like, oh, this is great, he's the only person in the world who could possibly pull that off, and I thought it was good, I'm not embarrassed to say it, I, I thought it was great, now, do I cry that it's not the, the, my, my buddies, uh, yeah, but I was already crying that it wasn't Bon Scott, so, so um, I, I think that it was great. So,, uh, so, I go to see, I'm at back at the Coliseum. I'm at the Coliseum. This is about ninety three. And I'm sitting at a table, I'm backstage, you uh, too. And I have had more fun backstage at U2 concerts than anywhere. Those guys, they go, they go all out. They have a—they have shrimp on a stick, and open bar, and just the food is amazing. Just, just the food. It's like a buffet, and they've got like, all the free merch and stuff back there. They really blow you away. When you're backstage at U2, you're like, it's, it's the best part. You, you look around, and you think, this is the best place in the world to be right now. <laughs> And, uh, and I've, been, I've had more than my fair share of those moments where I'm looking at them like, yeah, I guess there's stuff going on everywhere in the world, but this is the best place in the world. <laughs> and this was one of those nights. So I'm sitting at a table, and uh, there's about six tables back here. I'm looking over to my right because this table is filled with uh, Sports Illustrated supermodels. And uh, I tried to look up when this would be and stuff. It was a little hard to find, but uh, we can kind of we can kind of get there, and your fans are going to be able to figure out exactly what when this was. Because I did find a picture online. I went, Oh, that's what he was wearing. I remember that's what he was wearing. So I'm back there. But um, and the the supermodels were all there. Sports Illustrated because Axel was dating Stephanie Seymour, and she was over at the main table. At the main table was. Bono, and to his right was Axel Rose, and to his his right was Stephanie Seymour, and then a couple more people and some of her friends uh, and some of Bono's friends sitting at that table. I was at a table diagonal. Just you know, whoever me and I don't know who was sitting at my table, but the table next to me was the one I was really focused on because, like I said, it was all the Sports Illustrated models. This was in the heyday of supermodels, you know that that kind of invention of the supermodel, like so Cindy
2: were, Crawford, the whole MTV House of Style yeah, era.
0: All of them, all of them were there. That's in, yeah, yes. So Cindy Crawford and and I don't even you know Claudia Schiffer. No, that was a little before Claudia Schiffer, I think. But uh, it would be that that kind of thing going on. But there was one girl there, and she was really young and it was um, oh what's her name she's an actress
2: can you name a movie that she might have been in
0: yeah fifth element
2: Oh, Mila Jovovich?
0: Mila jo- Jovovich, okay. So uh, she's sitting on the back of it, and I'm sitting on the back. So she's kind of uh, parallel to me. And, and I was not very old. I was like 21 or something. She was like 16. She was the one I was zoning in on, you know, for whatever reason. That may be whatever now. <laughs> <laughs> in the same age group. She was probably 17, whatever she was. But that, she was like in my age group, so that would have been my only way to go talk to that table. And that's, I'm looking this way, and my, my, my friends are going like, yeah, your friends are gone go over there and I never interrupt anybody I never never interrupt anybody you know I, I just don't even if I'm I, I just don't do it um, so I wasn't going to go over there and I was a little shy and I didn't remember if he would know, know me or anything so so my, my friends told me they say oh by the way at the show earlier he said he did the song one and at the end of one he went into she's a mystery he did some lines from she's a mystery girl and at the end he went Roy Kelton that's for you so he actually said that to the audience of 120,000, and I got mm. a little tear. So they said, boy, it'd be rude. He knows you're here. It's rude. So I walked up to the table, and I'm standing there just kind of like trying to try. I'm, I'm still not in, interrupting. And Axel, uh, he sees me smiling, and I'm just not saying anything. I'm waiting for them to talk. It's you. It's 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 them talking. It's um, <laughs> So I wasn't gonna interrupt Bono and, and Axel Rose talking. I'm just standing there. So Axel looks up and he says, "Like you sure look like you're excited." And he said it like uh, like he said Greg Alman earlier. It felt it was Greg Alman he kind of vibe. He looked out he had his real straight hair, he had his blue bandana on, white shirt, the real stylish kind of torn up jeans. And, uh, and I'm looking at the picture right now. So that's why I see it. But I, that's what I, I went on. Oh, I remember this. And that was what he looked like. People hadn't seen him for a while, and it was a little bit like, and he had very straight hair, and his hair was red. So he was in one of his best-looking faces, and he had, he had Stephanie Seymour with him. And uh, he, said, he said, yeah, you, look, you sure look like you're excited. And I, I just politely said, like, yeah, I'm just going to say hello to Bono. Bono sees me, you know, grabs me by the shoulder, gives me a hug, and says, like, Roy, did you ever get that license plate you told me about? Just straight into, like, a conversation where it left off, you know, four years earlier. Uh, That was shocking. I was like, oh, wow. You know, I was humble a little bit. And um, at the time, Axel was a huge fan of Bono, kind of starstruck himself. and, And so he... He Suddenly, for whatever the way that Bono treated me, that there was this transference. Suddenly, Axel, which, and I was kind of like them saying, I was almost ignoring him. I wasn't going to freak out on him there. I was just going to say, I was going to let them have their privacy. You know, and, and and he he pulls out a seat and says, "Have a seat." So I sit down. Now I'm sitting in between, you know, Axel uh, on the right and, and Bono on the left, and I get pulled on in like an equal. And uh, and actually actually like, "How do you know Bono?" Oh well, my name is Roy Orbison Jr." And da 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 da. We start talking and. Uh, and we're just instant buddies, and he was really there was like I'm saying there was a transference somehow because Bono trusted me, he trusted me, and so suddenly I'm sitting down and we I'm only like 21, 22, and we're we're drinking, and uh, the place starts to thin out, starts to thin out, and we were there for the next four hours. Uh, it's two o'clock in the morning. The place is closed. Everyone's gone. The audience long gone. The backstage long gone. Everyone gone. And it's me and the, this one table. And uh, and then it's you know time to say goodnight, night. So we're going, and I'm walking out and I'm just, just smiling I already. Got a big smiles. I thought, wow, that was cool. <laughs> and I I realized, oh, I'm the only one not on a tour bus or in a limousine. So I have to walk back out, and of course I'm on the wrong side of the Coliseum. The the parking lot at the Coliseum. When you're the I'm the only car in there. <laughs>
3: very,
0: very lonely. Two thirty in the morning. Pretty dangerous area. I'm completely alone. Walking back, thought I was going to get killed through the parking lot to my one car, way, way, way away. And uh, and I just thought, that, well, this is where, <laughs> this is the difference in me and Bono. And, <laughs> I, mean, I get sick the parking lot, get killed in the parking lot. They're already like chauffeured and off and gone. So in a way, I was almost thought uh, maybe I shouldn't have stayed so long. There's no security. There's no nothing out here. I am walking around. Out here at night, so that's a great story. And you know, we had a lot of conversations. And uh, Axl Rose was about the coolest person ever uh, there. But I was also because I was focused on Bono, and I was already out of my road my my Guns N' Roses phase a little bit. You know, for me, Guns N' Roses was eighty eight, eighty nine. Just a couple of years later. I don't know what I listened to at the time, but but so I uh, so. We became friends there, and uh, he was really nice. It, it, it was a great night. Then uh, the next thing that was happening would be a couple of years later, around 98, I was an honorary member of some different bands, and uh, my brother Alex played drums with White Star, with Cisco Adler, and Dwayne Betts and stuff. We'd be doing gigs uh, at the Roxy all the time. And when I look back at this, this is a period where Slash was kind of sobered up but not but he, he still smoked cigarettes, I don't know he didn't smoke but but and he could also go wherever he wanted. But it was a little bit like the young people there, he would go by himself. So this is what I remember Flash. A lot of nights, and this is going to sound weird, because we would be at a table, and he would be, like, alone at the table next to us in the back of the Roxy, Or we'd be upstairs in the backstage in the dressing room, and Flash would just be in the corner by himself while we were jumping around, and it was, like you know, crazy stuff going on, uh, but, and young, it was very young, so there was, like, a generational gap. He was a, definitely respected and wanted, and I even remember going up to Cisco and saying Cisco, that's Slash in here. So I was like, yeah, man, whatever. The the, the 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 young girls and the things that were going on in the room and the band and the other people, you know, and now when I look back at it, I don't know, uh, but by, by, in that little period, you know, all, the, it's, it's a little bit early, but the, you know, quickly it was by two thousand one, two thousand two it was, you know, Paris Hilton and Jack Osborne and people. So there was already whoever it was in ninety eight back then, whoever it was was there. And that's what's what the focus was. And so Slash would be just quiet, smoking a cigarette and laughing and but he was really <laughs> that's why this is terrible. I love the guy. I love the guy. And uh, and I would be starstruck now again, but at the time he was just the extra dude over there. He was the old man. Jeez. Kids today. <laughs> and he would just hang out and he he would he would be watching the band and, and, and now I read his book and I realized that's a period in his life where he was a little you know, he didn't he needed a band. He was he was he was he was sober and he was focused on that. And he still liked to go out and it's cool as crap, you know. This is a dude who was still going out by right. himself in a Hollywood strip. He was he was the real deal. He was still doing it. You know, and uh, when I read the book and I realize oh he was having money problems and there was this and that and all this kind of stuff, it's hard to believe but he, and it just shows how much integrity the guy has that is who he is that 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 ketchup stealing, guitar playing mofo is who he is (laughs) (laughs) and he still was and he was just hanging out to be a part of the scene and he wasn't pushing in or acting like a star and And he was just soaking up the vibe and and laughing and hanging out with us. But he would literally be, you know, two or three yards away and just in the corner, smoking a cigarette, quiet, with his glasses and a baseball cap on backwards, slash, And just kind of in the shadows in the corner of the Roxy. And many, many times, I mean, so this is many times. I I had that happen about 20 times where he's in a room and nobody, he didn't talk to anybody, I didn't talk to him. I I also left him alone out of respect. But, uh... That's
2: really cool of you too. It's because you. It's like you. It's not like you were entitled, because you grew up around all these famous icons. That like, oh, I'm Roy Orbison Jr. I can talk to anybody.
0: Quite the opposite. You know, I had to. I had to be. Uh, I, I. That's also why I had to be careful about the stories I tell. You know, there's some. There's kind of a rock and roll code.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: and There's some stuff I just. You know, if they wouldn't want it known, I don't say it. So. <laughs> So I have to tiptoe around those things a little bit. But, uh, but that was then in the 90s. This is still how my story evolves along, alongside. Um, um, I had a car accident myself, uh, the same kind of car accident that ripped the Motley Crue. The Motley Crew guy was driving, and it ripped Yeah,
2: me. Vince Neo and um, Raz from <laughs> High Night Rocks
0: ripped his arm off, and it's when a seatbelt oh. catches the your, your ball of your shoulder and breaks the collarbone and then rips your arm off. Well, I had that happen halfway. Oh my I God, God. It. You know, on the left side, I had a car accident in, in 2001, and uh, I was under a lot of pressure at the time because the lead singer of our band, Backbone, my friend Chris Williams, he died, even this, this is just off the top of my head, he died, and I'm not going to say the name of the canyon because it's where Paxil Rose lives, but um, in Malibu, there, uh, with my friend, my the, what I'm talking about right now, 2001 in August, he he was uh, he went over the side of a cliff there and died in that canyon. Oh my God! And Axel's house is uh, ten houses up. So my best friend died right by Axel's uh, house in Malibu, and um, and um, then uh, so I was depressed about that, and my my That's grandfather right. died, and it's September 11th. I was just really depressed, and I had this car accident, and uh, and I thought I would never play guitar again. Mm. I was the kind of guy, as a kid, if you told me I, if you told me when I couldn't, you know, that I was never going to play guitar again when I was seventeen or eighteen, or that I was never going to have a girl again, I, I I would have been. I would have thought, just sh- shoot me now. Mm. Um, you know, so to have gone through what I've gone through, when I look back from 2001 to 2015, I didn't play guitar for 14 years. Wow. I would not have expected that. And I am an eight-hour-a-day guitar-playing nut, you know? Like, I really, really like it. It's what I do. And so it it ends up being part of my story, you know, that this was—it would be kind of like a, a, an Olympic skater breaking your ankle before the Olympics and then, you know, never—but but but, uh, but I. And uh, and then I went through my own stuff in life, and my mom died. All this stuff, 2015, uh, with my current wife. Just I was so happy around her, and I was in Sweden, uh, up all night while she was doing work, you know uh, and stuff like that. She'd work in the daytime. I was up all night in her apartment, and I grabbed a guitar again, and I started learning. And I, I wanted to learn what I didn't learn the first time, which was the names of the notes <laughs> and the scales. Huh. Scales, And I learned, you know, I never really took the time to learn the stuff they would teach you, you know, in music school. I learned the major scale, and then quickly I learned the modes, and I was just suddenly back again. And in learning that, I suddenly, I'm not sure exactly what songs I zoned in on, because I didn't want to, but, but I got back into Guns N' Roses. I do not know where I was, but suddenly, and, and it was a great time, 2015, you know, axel had, I mean, um, Slash had just done a, quite a few, he did Live at the Roxy.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And there was a, a TV show on that probably caught my eye uh, with Miles Kennedy, and just a great, great show, and Miles Kennedy, I became a big fan of Miles Kennedy, and, um, you know, I heard that Jimmy uh, Page invited him over to maybe be in Led Zeppelin, I said, oh, I have to figure out who this guy is oh, it's this guy that I wrote off back in 2012. <laughs> I heard that person, but like, like everybody, I just thought like, oh, and I don't want to sound bad, but I thought, you know, he was just too much of an axle person, you know, at the time. And nobody's going to be good enough. But when I, when I evaluated him on his own merits, I thought, wow. I mean, oh, I, I made a mistake selling him short there. That uh, if, while he can do those styles, he's very, very good. And, uh um, and uh, and so I forgave myself for doubting. <laughs> and I, I bought all those albums. Started getting into it. And I, I discovered that song Anastasia. Back to that one. That one has and oh, and I saw that YouTube of that beautiful girl playing Anastasia. She's playing along with it, and I was really impressed. Um, she, and so she, it's got like 50 million views. All your guys have seen it, and all your girls have seen it. But uh, but uh, and I'm responsible for about 20 or 30 of those. <laughs> but I was looking, and I realized, oh, she's. Playing. Along with the tape recorder, and that's like that's how I can do it. I can hit the tape recorder and play along with that song. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and that is actually pretty good. I had to learn it. I, went, yeah, I saw her do it. It said, "Put a chip on my shoulder." So I, I learned that song, and then uh, it's a bit harder when you're not playing with a pre-recorded track. And then you can hear the little mistakes and things. And, and uh, sure, but I learned Anastasia, and I I learned uh, the solo to Your Lie, and then I went back and learned all the other albums. And uh, and just there was something in there, and I don't have Slash's style. I actually have more of the Buckethead thing. uh, Buckethead has its own soothsayer. Yeah. And that's also, so what I did to Miles Kennedy, I also did to Buckethead. That's (laughs) awesome. I shot him down at first, too, and just, I didn't go see that. I wasn't interested. Uh, but later, I recognized, you know, uh, how good he is on his own. And, uh, and, uh, and that song, Soothsayer, oh, it's one of my personal top tens. And So I learned that, and I, I learned how to throw those things around. And Slash has a great, I really learned some great stuff, the three-note-per-string scale, or like, yeah, three-note-per-string kind of scales. They're very different than the two-note pentatonic-type scales. And I've watched him interviews where he said there's a slightly different hand position, and I learned to shift gears really well. And I'm like, oh, there you go. I heard it from the horse's mouth. And I went online. I watched a lot of YouTubes listening to Slash because it's really hard to get information. He's very kind of quiet about the fact that he is a scholar of the guitar and so you have to really extrapolate what he's doing from little little things he says and he said that and I went oh there gotcha man that's, that's it that's the trick there's a slightly you've got to angle your hand a little bit more for those three note per string scales and the two note per string so he's got these firework pentatonics mixed with the the modes and things are uh, oh, fantastic so uh, so I got back in and so I credit my girlfriend and Slash uh, and Gun and Roses for teaching me to walk again, so to speak. (laughs) Um, Then 2016, I went into jazz. It was all jazz. 2017, I got pulled. I started hanging out with James Burton and doing Elvis festivals and stuff. I got into Elvis again, back into Elvis 2017. 2018, I didn't even mean to do it, but I'm suddenly all Beatles and traveling Wilburys and... You know, so, uh, so my life, I just kind of go where it takes me, but I'm lucky enough that I have these real, so I, I told my, 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 wife, I said, Oh, I wish we'd done this interview. I need to go back. I need to just remember some of this stuff. Cause I, I knew it all, but in 2015, I spent nothing but a whole year on that. But you know, there's so many interesting parts of the story. I've just touched on a couple and uh, tried to say things that I know haven't haven't been discussed that much. Um,
2: I mean, this has just been uh, amazing, just what you know, your presentation of your stories and the presentation of how you compare different genres of music, different eras of of music. So uh, it's like what I told you off the air. I mean, I couldn't wait to have this conversation with you. And it it didn't disappoint. And it's so funny that I know this is not even this might be the tip tip of the iceberg of just the people you've encountered in your in your life, stories you have, philosophies you have. Uh, so, since you seem to downplay yourself as a guitarist, what do you? What would you say you excel at? What, because uh, I want everyone to follow Roy Orbison Jr. on on Twitter. Like, what would you say you excel at? Because, uh, like, what are your current things you're you're working on? Uh, I know you do stuff with your brother. Because um, I want to have you obviously come on again and find out more about you as a person. And like, you can just tell there's more Guns N' Roses stories there. And again, mm-hmm. I still can't believe that I just w- would never have thought. You know, I'm like, oh, he follows me on Twitter. That's enough. <laughs> and I'm so glad that I bumped into you that day. And you still owe me the picture. You know, you got to find I that picture.
0: <laughs> I'm sure I sent you the picture. I'm just bad on computers. And, um, yes, about myself, you know, people ask me, they, they say, oh, you play guitar. Oh, you know, da, da, da. and very quickly they kind of prejudge me that I am and I wish so I've learned to tell people I said oh I wish I was just another dead rock stars kid trying to make it with my band Hmm. I I wish my story was that simple I I would love it Uh, but it's a testament to my dad what he left us was uh, everything so I you know I wrote a book last year it's called Authorized Roy Orbison I'm making two movies um, one about the Beatles, one about Roy Orbison. They're both in production. Wow! I'm actually a film producer now, and in L A. it's a big deal if you have your SAG card, and then it's a little bit bigger if you're a director. All all the people love the SAG cards, the actors, and all <laughs> the actors love the directors, and all the directors love the producers. So I have a you know PGA card now. I'm producer. <laughs> it's a big big deal in L A. Um, we've got two plays. Uh, I've been working on a museum for 12 years. my God. That museum is April 23rd in Nashville. We're opening the Royal Orbison Museum. Awesome. Uh, We just did the first tour with a hologram. Royal Orbison is on tour. It was a sold-out tour in England uh, and Europe that did really well. We're going to do this year. This year is 2018 and next year, 2019, in America. We have uh, 75 dates, one week in Branson, Missouri, a one-month residency in Las Vegas. And then we're sending Roy on tour as a hologram. Keeps on going to Australia. So it's, you know, it's strange the way I I put it sometimes. It's like... Madonna's kids are going to have to study what we've done twenty-five years after she's dead. Roy is still kicking in doors and boundaries, not in the same way, you know. But uh, we still, you know, Roy, the, the lawsuits that Roy went through in his lifetime are the ones that made sure that artists got paid, and set up, and the things that Roy, Roy did—they they built the radio stations, they built Gibson guitar, they built, you know. Um, <laughs> these types of things, you know, and so, so we're still pushing the, the boundaries of, of, of legalities and trying to change the law in Europe and get the copyright laws extended. And um, I... Um, so I do a lot of things. I'm a music publisher, a huge music publisher. We have Song of the Year this year with Miranda Lambert, My Eyes. Um, I, own a, I own a lot of Taylor Swift music. Again, Song of the Year 2010 was... I'm a cheerleader, you're on the bleachers, all that song. And I own that. I own that <laughs> I, I wow. own, we music. We have uh, Blake Shelton, My Eyes. Kenny Chesney this year was All the Pretty Girls. So I own a lot of country music. I own some techno music. A huge number one in the world in 2014 was Are You With Me? It's the Drink Margaritas and Eat the Mexican Skies song. And uh, it's a techno song by Lost Frequency. It was number one in 18 countries, some of them twice. Everywhere but America, because techno is big. So I had a you know, huge Song of the Year again 2000. 2011. So I'm a music publisher, and my mom went around buying up all these catalogs of all these guys. So, I mean, I learned that from how Paul McCartney did that. He bought the Beatles, and Michael Jackson bought Paul McCartney's music. Right. And so, you know, my dad already, we, we all kind of were doing the same thing, and my mom became very good at that, so I still do that. I have a huge publishing company. And uh, we do... You know, I designed T-shirts for Roy Orbison, and I worked with the Traveling Wilburys and the Country Music Hall of Fame and Sirius Radio, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
2: Uh, how do you even find the time to not only do all that, but to listen to the music, the amount of music? Like How do you find the time and especially to have time to talk to me? Uh, how oh, well, how I, do you
0: do it? Uh, this is my love. You know, I've designed guitars with Gibson. Well, these are the parts of the areas that cross over, you know. I'm a big fan, too. So, so, you know, I like being in the boardroom of Gibson talking about, oh, can we do a Roy Orbson? Oh, you know, because... Slash and Jimmy Page are very heavily connected. Roy Orbison, so mm-hmm. yeah, I get Gibson dinners with both of those guys. Yeah, so I because I'm doing guitar with Gibson, I get to sit at the table with Jimmy Page sometimes, and I get to I get the first I get to see him first. Yeah, so little things like that that I can't even describe. Like I get to see the Slash guitars first. Yeah. You know, I'm walking around the factory in Tennessee here, and I, I know the guys who build them. I get to talk to them about specs and all that kind of stuff, and. uh so I just keep on kind of name-dropping a little bit. It's, it's Gibson, it's, you know, Madison Square Garden, it's the BBC, Disney, Coca-Cola. All these things are kind of connected to Roy Orbison. Um,
2: yeah, you are definitely not just some dead rock star's kid trying to make it. <laughs> you are definitely and to use your words. You're not. I mean, I'm. I feel lazy now. I mean, you you could have, you know, you hear a lot of these stories with, uh, you know, celebrity offspring, whether it be in films or music, and the story doesn't go right. But uh, this is just one of the most phenomenal and impressive stories I've. I've really heard. I mean, and, and just the, with the projects that are in the works and what's to come. And we've talked about uh, holograms on this podcast in regards to how bands proceed, of course, with GNR with the lineup changes. And uh, you know, would hologram Kiss? You know, one day it's going to be a band maybe without any mem- original members, a new Kiss. And how do people feel about the holograms? You know, Dio's seem to have been met with awkward reception, but I think it's because he, he, Left us not too long ago. I think with your mm-hmm. dad, what you're doing now, and it's it's the sons doing it. I think it's a big difference when it's the sons than with a wife doing it. I think it's something different. Like, that's my dad, you know? And I think you're paving away what a lot of bands are going to do in the future. You mentioned Madonna, or, or I mean, I don't know, what Madonna hologram. <laughs> It'll be interesting what bands do 20, 30 years from now when. Finally, the Stones retire. You know, GNR not going to do this forever. Of course, it's. Really, I think you're you're laying a lot of groundwork for what uh, music is going to become because we often talk about the brand. Guns and Roses is a brand, and they want that to continue. That's why, you know, a lot of the same bands and songs are played on the radio because the band the brand works. It's why all these remakes are made on TV and in movies because the brand works. It's sad, like you mentioned, it's for the state of rock and roll that GNR seems to be the last rock and roll band. Uh, but it's the brand that works. So the Roy Orbison brand is alive and well, and the future is limitless. I'm really excited to to see uh, what's the come. And I hope, um, I don't know if you know the, all the tour dates yet, but I hope it comes to New York because I want to see it.
0: Oh, they, they, they're, they're testing the waters around, but it's already been approved for, for more and more. So I think we're going to be doing this for the next year or two, and it'll, it'll get bigger and bigger places as people get used to it. Yes, we could talk a whole uh, session just about what you're talking about, about, like, you know Leonard Skinner that was incredible to me back in a certain day like around it was around 2008 or one of their big years they made 27 million dollars and the only original member was the to the keyboard player, you know, and, and I went to, I saw this somewhere, and it's a bunch of 15-year-old girls with, like, cut-off midriff, you know, mm-hmm. belly tears, and they do, they do you know, Sweet Home Alabama, and they all turn on their iPhones and stuff, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, these people... They think they're seeing Leonard Skinner. <laughs> nothing bad about, you know, that, that new documentary is great, and they're a great band, and the new band is great. I know those guys, too. But I actually did sit there with them and say, like, how, how are you guys doing this? This is incredible. You know, you're doing a tour of the and, and they are. There's some Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, uh, amazingly, ACDC, the whole second generation, you know that was that was probably the most successful ever and it works if the music's good you know for for, what they did with Journey Journey they they got that kid off of karaoke yeah Yeah. his heart's in the right place and he sounded good and he busted his ass off and uh that's always going to work, I think, uh, they're just like Guns N' Roses, you know, talent with hard work, and, and that, that's the only way it can be done. Um, the hologram is a strange new thing, I admit, um, but, you know, when you're building it on the voice and those songs, you know, uh, that's, the way, that's the way it can work, whether it's B.O. or Kiss or whoever. I mean, the next one that's actually realistic that's coming is ABBA. 1978, Abba. Mm. And, you know, there are some that work. You know, like the floor of Elvis would be great, and they've already done something kind of like that. It's called Elvis Lives, and El they they, they tour. You know, with a screen, and and we're probably going to do something like that. That's good for my dad too. Black and white night, with us touring. You know, just go do 3,000 the places all year long. That that's a dream. That's that's a fun show. But uh, the hologram, it's just a visual that we built on these songs. Without the songs, it wouldn't work. Without my dad's voice, it wouldn't work. If you get those two things... You could put a coat rack up there, and it might work. <laughs> so uh, the hologram, uh, though, it has amazing other potential. Like, you know, I'm thinking already the Wilburys. Yeah. Now, Jeff, Jeff Lynn is still alive, and we, of course, we are not going to ask him to tour with this. But, but you know, for people that didn't get to see this, uh, and Bob Dylan, uh, that is people. When I do these interviews, they said, "What would you like to see on a hologram?" I said, "Traveling Wilburys," mm-hmm. but it has so much more potential. My other big list would be, you know. Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Charlie Parker, um, um, Hank Williams, Martin Luther King on the grass in front of the. <laughs> front of the <laughs> front of speech every year on the anniversary. Yeah, I will see that.
2: that you know what? You should somehow patent that idea. That should happen. That it should happen.
0: It depends on what it is. It depends on what it is. So, yeah. um. And and it turns out that you know uh, the Royal someone—it works real well. It, it's really good. There, there's, and it's not just a matter of you, you know someone being great. There's, there's people that it wouldn't work for. And, uh, and, and frankly, we've got enough of a chip of uh, enough of a chip on our shoulder. Shoulder, sorry. <laughs> that I wouldn't care if people swag it or whatever. It's not for you. It's not for you. We like it. We're doing it.
2: I, that's all that matters, because what I said before—it's—it's it's your dad, and, and coming from somebody who else, so I, you know, uh, my dad's no longer here. You know, you you do whatever you need to do to carry on their their legacy, whether it could just be simply living your life. Uh, for me, I'll talk about depression uh, specifically regarding my dad, so I live through it. That's how I do it through radio. Um, mm-hmm. No one could tell you how to do it, and just based upon this entire conversation, you have not nothing but good intentions. You're just a a fan that's coming up with new and creative things, and while at the same time in awe of what came before you, which I think is the only way to do it.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Rando. You're doing a great service too. You'll you'll be surprised that in the years to come, these podcasts are this generation's television. You know that these things—they used to do live TV, like the honeymooners and stuff—and they didn't even record it. They didn't care. They didn't realize what it was going to be for generations. And uh, so, I hope I have put something down here for my kids and other kids, long, long after us, to just go back and find little seeds of truth where they can and uh, and uh, learn more about these. great... Guys, and in this case, it's you know, and I left out talking about. I, I saw Matt Forum when did I see him last? Just I met him backstage at some stuff. Oh, Ringo's birthday party! So, Ringo's birthday party, not last year, but the year before, I'm back there, and the same thing like, he's just a normal guy because the room is filled with. You know Beatles and People there It's all really Amazingly high ranked Like people mm. but, uh, And then so So that leaves You know Matt Sorum and I Kind of over by The food buffet <laughs> <laughs> And I took advantage I got I got a post that. I'm going to try To do some posts That correspond With what you're doing And I'll, I'll try to post A picture of my Son Roy 3 Roy Orbison third. I got him I said just hold him I took a picture So that's how much That guy meant to me You know I, I love Tom I love all of them. And uh, I could talk about Dr. Kagan and his business sense in Seattle. And he invested his money in Starbucks and, and two little companies, Starbucks and whatever the other one was up there, Microsoft.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I think he's, I've heard of them. <laughs>
0: he's, I mean, the most, he's the most, um, what would you call it? He's the richest Out of of them, he's the richest. And that also shows where his heart is. He's out on this tour because he wants to be. Mm. Because he's with his buddies. And he's the only one. He was friends with all of them. And he he never had any serious issues. He was having fun the whole time. And it's just amazing thinking that this guy invested his money. And he's the richest out of the Guns N' Roses. And so he's actually the one... I don't know. He's, doing, he's the one making it work, because he's doing it for fun.
2: He's probably the one that needs it the least. I mean, Slash with his I, divorce, I, Axel, I mean, who knows how much, if he's still paying off Chinese democracy. Duff doesn't
3: need it.
0: need it. They don't need it, but, but but still, he is in this, he's kind of entered a business world where he's got respect in a different area, you know, and so when he does this, it's still for the same reason he started. And, you know, so I love that guy, too, and I could talk about that. He's connected to us through our neighbors at Chrome hearts. He, he, and he and my brother and, uh, um, sex pistols, Steve Jones, you know, I'm good friends with Steve Jones. They're family friends. Mm. So I, I've had conversations with Duff about some weird stuff, you know? And, uh, and he, he was always very open and honest and talking and, uh, and he's friends with Chrome hearts, his company that does all this cool leather and silver stuff. And, and they hired my brother and Steve Jones and, Back of their daughter or something. So,
2: well, before I forget, I got to say Mazel Tov for uh, Roy the uh, Third. Congratulations, <laughs> and because you, you recently tagged us him wearing a Guns N' Roses shirt, but he's adorable. Yeah. Congratulations to you and your wife.
0: Yeah, he's wearing the Guns N' Roses shirt, and that that, that was bow actually. That's my next uh, son. They oh, know. okay. But uh, but that was completely unconnected to this. That's what got your attention again.
2: That's what got my attention. So forgive me. I, I didn't do much stalking. I don't know all your kids' names. So forgive me.
0: No, but that was. Even that, that is really who I am, dude. I did a post last month of my kid in a Guns N' Roses shirt for no reason whatsoever, and you saw it, got back in touch, and... uh So, thank you very much, and God bless you and the podcast, and Guns and Roses. They are incredible.
2: (laughs) Thank you, Roy. I mean, everybody needs to follow Roy on Twitter, at Roy Orbison Jr., also RoyOrbisonJr.com. And I know we'll do this again, just uh, as we initially planned uh, in studio, and the fact that we've been talking for over an hour and a half that we... Scratch the service surface, and just so many ways that we can go. Uh, just talking, just as fans, or talking intellectually about stuff. Uh, this has just been one of my favorite interviews I've done so far. So, uh, thanks for. Thank
0: you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're awesome,
2: Roy. I mean, I'm so glad thank I got you. to meet you, and, um, you know, at least, like, over the phone. Well, in person, that did happen. And it's not like you need my help with anything with your success, but if there's anything I could do for you, please don't hesitate to ask.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you. I'll send you tickets to the hologram when it comes through there.
2: Awesome. I look forward to thank it.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Thank Th- you.
2: Thanks. Have a good day. I I don't even know what to say. That was just an incredible conversation that could have gone on for for hours and hours and hours, and it's not like, yeah, we've had some cool guests on, and obviously all with a G and R hook, but we can spend a lot of time away from GNR. Um, one that comes to mind, maybe Johnny Kelly, right? I mean, his connection, uh, Johnny Kelly from Typo Negative, was being in hookers and blow for a few years. So with Dizzy Reed. How many specific GNR stories could he have? Of course, he had, but a lot of it was spent on typo and his upbringing in, in Brooklyn. But here, as I admitted, I had no idea Roy Orbison Jr. was. I mean, everyone could be a Guns N' Roses fan, but at that level, the level he's at, to to know the, yeah, okay, you want to go deep into use your illusion. Fine, if you grow up in that era, you should know all the tracks. But knowing. The slash, the new slash stuff. It's not like oh, oh, I'm aware he does stuff with Miles Kennedy. He knows, the, he knows it. He knows it and studies the music. He studied Buckethead. He's a gun. He's one of us. He's one of us. How cool is that? Roy Orbison Jr. is one of us. So uh, I look forward to the next conversation with him, and uh, I hope you do too. So that does it for Episode 85 of Appetite for Distortion. Thank you so much! Uh, Whether you found us on AlternativeNation.net, on iHeartRadio, on the app, on Spreaker, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, or on YouTube, yes, we officially have a YouTube channel. The first 20 episodes are up there right now. It's going to be a slow rollout. I want to expand the brand to get more people to know about us. Like Roy just happened to find. I mean, that's amazing. But I want more and more. And I think you guys too, guys and gals, do too, because this is a Guns and Roses, a fun Guns and Roses radio show. You're gonna get a taste of GNR, and who knows where this could be? If this could be more than the one week goal that I have, I don't know. Something to replace your your crappy morning FM radio show. You're not going to hear this anywhere else. Roy, we would not have had that conversation on any FM station. It could not happen. Things are changing. Whether it's radio, whether it's the hologram stuff, things are changing and gene connects it somehow. <laughs> I don't know. That's the constant. Uh, at least that's what I tell myself. Anyway, uh, thanks again uh, for everyone who uh, for following, listening. Uh, of course, Facebook, facebook.com slash The AFD Show. You can give us a recommendation on there, review, and on Twitter, How I Met Roy, at The AFD Show. So, until the next episode, what's going to happen? When is it going to happen? I don't know. But in the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy, I don't know if soon is the word But you'll see it.
3: Thanks to the lame ass security, I'm going home.